Hi, I'm Adrian. And right this moment, there are tens of thousands of black entrepreneurs around the world creating amazing startups that you've never heard about. For some reason, the mainstream media doesn't cover black entrepreneurs as much as it should. But on this show, we find these amazing founders. We sit down with them. We figure out how they got their ideas launched, what their struggles were, what they're afraid of, what drives them. My hope is that you have enough firepower from listening to the show to go out there and start your own business. Or if you're working on something, continue plowing through it. Let's have an amazing time together. Welcome to the show. All right, so everybody, I'm here with Miss Brooke Sinclair. Did I say that properly? Boom, 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 boom. Yep. All Brooke right, Sinclair. And Brooke Sinclair. And there's certain people that just, for some reason, get pushed into my feed a lot on LinkedIn. I just keep seeing them pop up and pop up. And I'm like, okay, let's take a look. Let's see what she's doing. I'm like, oh, she's actually doing something interesting. Okay, cool. That's why LinkedIn says that you're cool. So you actually get to know you. But I, I take a look at your company um, and you're doing something really interesting with logistics, which I found very interesting because there's not a lot of black people in logistics, right? Yeah. And on top of that, you're doing something with blockchain as well. Okay. Interest is spiked. Okay, cool. Now we got to talk, right? I want to know everything you know. So the first thing I'm going to ask you is what are you doing at Valorit? Yes. So Valora is an automated supply chain platform for the import-export industry. And what all that means is essentially we're making it easier to import-export out of Latin America and North America. So we're bridging the gap of distribution between Latin America and North America, and we're specifically welcoming and, uh, you know, we're paying extra attention to products made by founders of color. If you look at the number of products that are exported, American-made products that are exported from America, most of those products are owned and operated by people who are not Black. Very few times do you ever hear about a Black owner that has a product that's being distributed that they are where the owner, the entrepreneur themselves, has not grown an extension of themselves and become a shipper, importer, exporter. It's usually something that that entrepreneur has to like take on to, to themselves to, and like get involved in. And it's stressful, it, it, you know, and it, it's heartbreaking. It's, I mean, it's just, it really can literally make your hair fall out. So from what I gather, you're saying that if I have my line of chocolate soaps, right? And I'm manufacturing that in the United States and I want to expand to Latin America, right? Instead of me actually now becoming an exporter myself, I can sign up to Valorid and say, hey, you know what? You're my connect, right? I can put my products on the platform and you have the distribution channels and you handle all the shipping. Do you handle the payment as well? Or how does that work? Yes, and that's a very good question. So in order to make the process very clean and streamlined, we are the buyer. So you're, if you're a manufacturer, you're selling to Valorit. And then that, that transaction is done and over. So Valorit, we, and essentially we pre-sale the product. And so our profit margin comes from that additional markup that we put onto the product. Oh, smart. Okay. How does blockchain come into this now? Okay. So I will tell you honestly, and, and people have been trying to like call me out in a very negative way. We did not write the blockchain. We did not create the blockchain. We use third-party pre-existing blockchain softwares and technologies to track the product directly coming off the manufacturing line as it goes from the manufacturer through the port to the final destination. Okay. Well, this is something that I've found very interesting because a lot of, well, I'm not going to say a lot of, but a lot of investors or startup coaches at accelerators will tell you 99% of apps or products that use the blockchain don't need the blockchain. But how does traditional tracking systems differ from the blockchain system? Why is it better? 
it's it's not just better it's literally revolutionizing the import export process so it used to be the horror stories of import export people would lose product at the at the dock or uh the product if it's refrigerated we become un refrigerated and be sitting out sweating in the sun mm-hmm. or you know it would be lost in transit where where maybe a ship went under or something far-fetched but mm-hmm. like it literally just the product will go disappearing will, okay. will disappear the blockchain revolutionizes that process by making it transparent and proactive. So from an internal perspective, when we use third-party logistics companies, if a third-party logistics company is a really bad company, we get a lot of dings on them, um, meaning like our stuff gets stuck in customs or comes up missing or is at a temperature, then we, the blockchain will remind us and let us know not to use that. So our services get better. Mm. From a customer's point of view, the Latin American importers, it actually becomes fun to import things because you can literally see your product as it leaves, just like when Uber eats, when the car come towards us with our food, mm-hmm. you can see the car, like the product leaving the little uh, manufacturing, going through the port. And it's like, oh, that's fun. It's coming towards me and it's here. Yay. So when it comes to the infrastructure, right? Shipping is notoriously complicated. You've got like tons of paperwork, bill of ladens. You've got different liners, use different systems. Stuff can go dark. It's really, it's a nightmare, right? Mm-hmm. Don't ask me how I know this. I just know this, right? <laughs> but when it comes to the blockchain, right? The theory is that there's this ledger that everybody has a copy of, right? And it sounds to me like the software allows the client to also see what's going on, right? Mm -hmm. But how much adoption do you have to have across the board when it comes to everybody that's involved in handling this package, right? Is it something that they have to also buy into? The shippers also have to have this, whatever the system is installed and paid for and so they can use it? Or does it not matter if they actually employ these systems or not? It would just be tracked automatically somehow. It doesn't matter if they use it, because just like when you and I use Uber Eats, it doesn't matter if we're looking at it on a Samsung or an iPhone, right? Mm-hmm. We can still put in an order. Um, however, there is some huge technological adoption happening at the U.S. Embassy on the government level. Mm-hmm. So all the customs process, so actually uh, back in 2015, 2016, um, the embassies, the Department of Commerce, the Foreign Agricultural Service, the Agricultural Trade Offices, and a number of other government institutions that I can't remember their acronyms right now, were already building, had started building APIs so that the customs process becomes paperless. So, yeah. Okay. So, so it, it sounds to me like we're in this middle ground now of adoption is happening. It's happening fast. We're not, not everybody's on board yet, but people can clearly yeah. see it's the future and this is how things are supposed to be done. Right. Well, I got to admit it, it wasn't happening fast pre-COVID, but post-COVID is fast now. It's fast now. Okay. Mm-hmm. So the ports are notoriously very interesting places where millions get made on top of the table, but then millions get made under the table as well, right? Mm -hmm. It happens. We all know it. Do you think that you'll get resistance from the folks that make money under the table uh, with with regards to this radical transparency? Or is it, it's not even going to be a question. Everybody's just going to adopt it and there's going to be no pushback. What's the negative for them? There's definitely going to be some pushback at the customs um, and those people who, you know, benefit from under the table will, you know, they want to keep that. That's their summer home. Um, So that is something we've honestly just kind of budgeted for. Like we just put extra in the budget for because we know we're going to have to take that out in an ATM and pay whatever we got to do to get out of the customs. So I'm not happy about it, but. I, I hey, look, I completely get it. It's the cost of doing business across the borders. Um, and most companies would never admit it, but there's a budget for this across the board. Right. I, IBM, GM, Apple, everybody knows it, right? Right. So backtrack to when you started 
And and I say this because a lot of our listeners are people just like you and me. They might have professional jobs. They're looking for the next thing. And you don't run into somebody who's doing import-export as a black woman, right? No. It's very rare, right? And I'm not saying they don't exist. Obviously, they do. But it's not very common. So how did you, first of all, discover that there was this problem of shipping right? And exporting goods. And how did you get started with this solution? Yeah, I have to admit, as far as like realizing the problem, um, I started out at 19 as a production stage manager, sending things from East to West Coast domestically. And so I was always familiar with the ins and outs of shipping. But then fast forward, I found myself working at the Houston Food Bank uh, right before starting the company. And I was managing um, a huge retail donation program where uh, we had three other food banks underneath our umbrella. And then we had trucks going out to about 250 different grocery stores throughout 18 counties and bringing up back pallets. So I, I got to understand where the technology was coming in, right? Because that was about like 2014 ish or so. And so technology in logistics and transportation and all that stuff is really has kicked up a lot over the last decade. But it was when starting the first business. So uh, before Valorit, we had Valorit Imports and we tried to run in the analog, uh, you know, brick and mortar capacity and couldn't scale. It was like so many, we needed a bunch of this, a bunch of that. We had so many wonderful opportunities to work with the Grand Hyatt Bahamar, the Four Seasons in St. Kitts. And it was like, we just couldn't get investors to realize the scalability. So why, then, Why was that? You know. If you, if you try, if, no, I mean, well, let's get into it. If you try and break it down, why do you think that it was a struggle? Because clearly there's a huge market there, Right. What was the problem? I talk white, but I am still black. And because there are not a lot of black women who understand supply chain or who are in this world of technology versus supply chain, right? They just didn't. I think some investors, they want to be founders and they want to be the one that has that idea. And so if you come and you are passionate and you have the idea and the knowledge, they kind of hate on you and they'd be like, yeah, you're not going to, you don't have the juice. And I'm like, no, but I got the juice now. So we have an issue here where black founders have great ideas to take it to investors. And I mean, I'm, I'm guessing this was what, three, four years ago, five years mm -hmm. ago? Right. Mm -hmm. Things have changed now. There's a lot more black VCs, black investors. There's a lot of there's a lot of shaking and baking happening. But your experience was that people weren't interested. Right. And when you break it down, there's a number of factors, race being one of them mm -hmm. and obviously gender being mm -hmm. another which is a stereotype. But despite all that, you've been going for five and a half years now, mm -hmm. right? So what I want to get into is how do you go from, okay, I've got this great idea, right? We've tried something. We can see that it's not scaling. We need capital. It's very capital intensive, right? It's not necessarily purely software. It's an operation that we need to pull up with regards to how much money we have. Mm -hmm. but then you get pushed down saying, hey, we're not going to fund this thing because of X, Y, and Z. Now, how do you go from that? Because I feel like a lot of people get to that point and they just go, oh, well, you know, it is what it is. I'm just going to like move on, right? Going from that point, right? How do you then say, you know what? I'm going to get in business for myself. What are the steps that you took mm -hmm. to actually get it up and running to where it is right now? Yes. Well, first I curled into a tiny ball and I cried. <laughs> um, and then once that was done, <laughs> I just let myself be like, cause, uh, yeah, honestly, I will tell you that, uh, in my personal experience, I have gotten knocked down. My forte is in getting knocked down and then getting back up. You, like that Rocky quote, you know, it's not how much you get knocked down. It's how much you can get back up and keep going. And that's the part that I, I, that I'm really good at. I'm really good at, unfortunately for those investors who tried to dismay me, I am really good at getting back up, finding a new method and working that new method. 
say. I completely agree with that. But if we talk about like actionable step, right? Mm-hmm. How are we able to get more money in the bank? Did we look at bigger deals? Did you look at grants? Like what are some of the actionable things that you that you took? to get you going. Okay. Okay. So, uh, grants. Yes. What's really turned is that I actually, um, networked and got to know, uh, a person from humble ventures, humble ventures. Uh, I can't remember his name right now, but he introduced me to the national black chamber of commerce and they have come on with a huge amount of resources, some grants, capital, um, and I've been able to use that. And luckily our people have come through. They understand once they got to see the pitch deck, they understood how big it could be for people who look like us, right? Um, and they've been hugely, hugely helpful and supportive with grants and resources and all sorts of stuff. Okay, that makes sense. So now we're at the point where we got some money. We can put some cash in this thing. We maybe we hire some employees. Maybe we don't. Maybe some contractors here and there. Boom, boom, boom. But now you've got to go over to Latin America and develop your distribution there, right? Mm-hmm. You got to have some boots on the floor. You got to go from supplier to supplier or from mom and pop shop to pop shop saying, hey, would you like this item here, right? That doesn't scale, but do things that don't scale, right? Yeah. So what was that process like, right? How are you identifying suppliers, number one, or buyers? How are you approaching them? What is that process like, right? Yeah, honestly, Post-COVID, luckily, a lot of the suppliers have where mom and pop shops would not have been online before. Post-COVID, now they're online. Uh, So there have been a huge number of conferences, summits, the Americas Food and Beverage Conference, I think, just happened this week, um, where ordinarily that would be in person in Miami. I was able to meet with suppliers and buyers from Ecuador and Argentina. And yeah, a lot of the people who are brick and mortar people who are like baby boomers who ordinarily before would not have known how to even work Zoom calls are now coming online. And so we're able to make that connection and build that relationship as though we are in person. Okay, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So virtual is is definitely one thing. And you run everything through your web portal, right? So if I'm a SMB, mom and pop shop, and I'm making a product, or let's say I'm a sole entrepreneur creating something, do I just go to your website, upload descriptions of my products, send you some samples, you approve it, and then from then on you go and you make sales? Or what is the simple process to getting onboarding people on the seller side onto your platform? To sellers, so suppliers. Um, So for suppliers, we actually have, thanks to the National Black Chamber of Commerce, we actually have a marketplace where manufacturers and suppliers can come and congregate. And from that marketplace, we can pull what we need. So we really want to turn it into an on-demand model. So that once we have a a buyer in Argentina, so for example, actually this week I'm working on looking for a telemedicine app and services. So I know that that's there. So I'm looking, we're looking for people who can make that or people who have tele-app services. And so we find 10 of them, bring them to the marketplace, let them coexist in the marketplace. And then whoever fits the price model, we're able to sell their services to the Latin American buyer. So we doing services too? Yeah, we just expanded. Well, now we got really interested, right? Because services can scale. Yeah. How do you manage quality control with that? I will be honest. We don't know yet. That is probably the most powerful thing any founder can say. If you're listening to this, that answer right there can save and make and break everything, right? <laughs> Saying you don't know is the most powerful thing. Even if you didn't invest in me, then, right? Say, how yeah. are you going to scale this? We're not sure yet, right? But we're really excited <laughs> about it. <laughs> We're going to figure it out. We know somebody who wants to buy it. Look, let's finish that part first. Look, founders will always figure it out. (laughs) 
And that was, I, I personally love that. That was beautiful. Thank you. But yeah, so it gets really interesting now because that can scale. So now you're telling me if I offer a service, and I guess my next question is what types of services are best suitable to what you're doing? And what is your fast moving product right now? And what is the most in-demand service that you can actually broker on your platform? Yeah, so our most in-demand services. So right now we're looking for a telemed medicine app and software. We're looking for uh, CRM creators and a human resource talent manager software, I believe, platform. Somebody wants a like human resource thing. Um, so those are our three main services as far as uh, products. So we're really great in the refrigerated aisle. So that's craft beer, wine, cider, spirits, beverages, kombuchas, fancy cheeses, uh, you know, chocolates, anything that would be in the refrigerated or frozen aisle to start. Okay. Very interesting. So in terms of like man in this operation, how many people do you have to have on board on your side here in the U.S.? to make it work? So we just added on a CTO and a development engineer. So we are now a team of five, including myself. Okay. And how big can this business be? You know, are we, are we saying that, you know, is it a hundred million dollar? Is it a $10 million thing? Is it a million dollar business? What would excite someone who's tuned in right now to say, hmm, you know what, let me, let me take a peek and what's happening in the logistics world, you know, break some numbers down. Let me tell you, okay. Our vision is to be Kevin Hart cool with Jeff Bezos money. Okay. Right. <laughs> I'm going to have so, to ask, what does that mean? That means stacks on stacks on stacks all day. You you look at Amazon, you look at Alibaba, that will be Valorit. If the platform is going to grow, the technology is going to grow, and the scalability is out of this world. What's the addressable market and every pitch deck, right? You say, okay, there's the big market, right? Where, you know, you got to haul cars and ship big things, right? There's steel and there's cotton and there's, you know, all that stuff, fabric. And then you say, that's I I don't know, $10 trillion industry. And then my addressable market is a subset of that. What is that addressable for you? Well, the import export market is a $5.6 trillion market. Within that is the $83 billion last Latin America e-commerce market. And then if you trickle that down, that becomes the $40 million per quarter of food and beverage sales. So it's it's pretty nice little nice little grip. How competitive is it? Extremely, extremely competitive. So what's your competitive edge? One, I'm black. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. But so that's that's one competitive edge. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm a female. Uh, so uh, honestly, the fact that I'm underestimated is actually something that I, I, I think is a competitive edge because nobody really pays attention. They're like, oh, it's that black girl that's in supply chain. There's not a lot of them. She won't last long. <laughs> and then I'm like, mm-hmm, I'll just mind my business. And meanwhile, I'm like taking over the world uh, uh, on the you know quiet front. So yeah, for sure, there's, mm-hmm. there's this point where. Where, at least in my case as a founder, you're working, things are happening, and then you figure something out. You're like, ooh, oh, wow. It's like walking in the sand, and then you step mm-hmm. on a piece of glass. You're like, that's sharp. I bit this glass there, right? And everybody's mm. trying to look for glass, and you're just like, I just found it. I had to bleed to find mm. it, right? Is that my analogy might be horrible, but that makes sense to you. You're like, okay, I just stepped on something here right now. I'm going to slowly sit down on the floor and I'm going to like dig a little bit more because there could be more glass around here. And when I translate that to startups, the story normally goes, people would say, oh, we were working on this thing. And then we realized that X, right? Or then we figured out that Y. Have you got to that point yet where you realize, ooh, we found something that I don't think a lot of people are paying attention to right now that we can capture? Honestly, yes, we had that. Uh, And we had that about this time last year where we realized that the import-export market was still predominantly running in an analog capacity. And we realized, oh, 
there's all these new tracking technologies, all these uh, logistical tracking blockchain technologies, and nobody seems to be realizing that the left side and the right side are working on this. Um, they have solutions that solve the problem, but they're not thinking about how to put those two solutions together. Aha! Aha! And then that's, yeah. So that's more of the, the win-win situation, right? Mm-hmm. Sellers get to sell more product. Buyers get to buy unique products and sell them locally. Mm-hmm. I found that... um I can't remember the startup's name, but I listened to the founder and he was saying that like 80% of the products in my mom pop shops don't change ever, right? Because there is a slow adoption of new products with locals, regardless of where you are, right? If you go to a local store, maybe you get TT's hot sauce or you've been buying that for 10 years and now you see uncle's hot sauce, right? Chances are you're probably just going to grab TT's hot sauce and move away. Right. So you're playing in this 20% range of what people will try. And I think what they were doing was they were like, oh, buy our product. We'll send you the consignment for free. And if it sells, then you essentially pay for the shipment or something like that. Right. So it's like an easy way for mom and pop shops to rotate new products in and out to see if they will sell. Right. In your case, you're actually selling it to them up front. Have you found anything along the lines of the adoption rate of whatever new products coming through these stores? And, and what is that side of the market looking like? So our customers have told us that what happens is that they actually get a big peak with new uh, products, but that peak only lasts for about 90 days. Once that new product becomes like an old product, right? And it's sitting there and everybody's already experienced it and they've already brought all their friends and they've had their date, then after 90 days, it's pretty much you lose that fizzle. So what we're actually doing is helping establishments create buzz. And like, oh, uh, so American items, especially in Latin America, are big draws, like attention getters. So what we're doing is helping them create a champion buzz within their community. So they're they're going to be known as the people who always have new stuff. That's that's one interesting way to do it. So you're essentially helping them create an experience around trying new products. But when it comes down to locals, right? Mm -hmm. And I'm sure they have a shop local movement out there as well. Mm -hmm. Have you seen any drawback from locals saying, you know what, this new product coming out of the States is cool, but we want to shop local and support our own local brands here. And is there a tug of war there? Have you noticed anything like that? You know, I haven't noticed anything so far. Um, Specifically in food and beverage, uh, it's one of those categories that you can try both the local and you can use the local for a certain base, right? and then use the tourist attraction product to like insinuate others to come. And then sometimes the locals, yes, like in craft beer, for example, people love their local craft beer, but then they also like to have some other international craft beer. So the more you keep having both, the more heightened attention and more uh, newsworthy it becomes. Um, so it's still it's still a, an up cycle together, if that makes sense. Completely. I completely understand that everybody likes to try something new. That's why the world works. Right. So you have a team of five. Did you have to give equity away to early employees and early team members to get on board? I've had to give it a little bit of equity, yes. Okay. How much equity did you have to give away? Like 5%. equity. Okay. So that means that they're on salary at this point. They are coming to salary. Yes. Okay. Are you paying yourself yet? No. Dang. I know. (laughs) This is the part where it gets sticky, people. Yo, look, there's a lot of other ways you can make money in this world without starting a startup. And if you have access to that, you should go do that. (laughs) (laughs) founders are kind of crazy i don't know why they do this i don't know why we do this but i've I've heard that you should pay yourself even if it's a couple hundred like there should be coming in there should be something coming in from the company to your bank account every month and if you go out and buy yourself a steak and 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 some wine cry over you know how you're not making any money yet like at least you should let the company fund that okay 
<laughs> Are you still actively fundraising? <sighs> Not actively, no. Honestly, about three weeks ago, I finally just said, this is poppycock. And I am <laughs> like not going after investors anymore. I'm just focusing on the business and getting myself paid. <laughs> like, you know what's funny? It's very interesting because, look, I think Black founders get judged differently in the same, in the very same way how you're in the corporate world and, you know, you have to work 10 times as harder to be seen as an equal and 11 times as harder to be seen as someone who knows what they're doing. Mm. And in the same way how you have a business, there's some profit coming in, there's some movement, there's some form of product market fit in a way, and you just need some money to go explore, right? And and I think that sometimes we get judged as, you know, this business must be smooth. But the truth is, if it's smooth, why, why the hell do I want you in my company? Right. Like if I have a business that's working and making money, why do I want to go sell a piece of it right now? So that being said, I think the fact that you're focused on actually building the company up and getting it profitable in and itself will become something that's attractive to more investors. And I think you put yourself in the position where now you can negotiate better deals, right, because you don't need them to survive. So that's one way to do it. And look, if you're out there and you can raise some money, raise it right? Definitely. Raise it. Definitely raise the money, but don't wait on it. Get going. Find a way to, to get profitable. A charge from day one. It's an easy way to know if people want your product. So I definitely understand that part. Yeah. Okay. So let's sidetrack a little bit. Let's talk about you as an entrepreneur. Okay. And, and also I'm, I'm super interested to know, I feel like your heart is in the diversity and inclusion space. When I look at your... <laughs> All the activity, all the rumblings, all the things that you're up to. I feel like that's a huge Trojan horse for you and you're carrying it around. It's like there are signs of life there. You And somehow I want to draw a stick out of a hat. Okay. Right? And I'm going to read some tea leaves here okay. and say that that's what you really want to do. Am I wrong? It's a passion project. It is a passion of mine. It is a a topic that I am sincerely, um, it it stays on my mind. Yeah, you're not wrong about that. Okay. So that being said, why? Was it something that happened to you personally? You know, is there a story to tell behind why you care about diversity so much? Because you're on a different, I mean, you've done different things. You're on some boards, you parts of this organization, your scout helping black women and people of color uh, get found and find investments. You know, why do all that? Why not just focus on your business? I, honestly, I kind of wish that I could. Um, I feel like I've been given a power, the ability to translate black culture and black experiences into words and feelings that non-black people can understand and and empathize with and because i have that power it is my responsibility to go out and and do this work i understand that and what exactly is this work like what are you doing in this diversity space being that you're a black founder a woman, and you also looking to help other founders level up. Mm-hmm. What lever are you pulling on right now to get more people up? The Bias Rehab Center. The Bias Rehab Center. Mm-hmm. Okay, talk to me about that. What is that? So during quarantine, I noticed that there was a huge uptick in the number of Karen attacks. And I, I was study, studying the Karens, and I realized that there was a strong familiarity between the Karen attacks and some other people that I had known from my time of living in Chicago. My colleague and I, our, our hypothesis is that the biased thoughts and actions of privilege are an addiction and therefore have to be treated like an addiction. So when you see a Karen attack, we believe that what you're actually seeing is a drug fiend looking for a fix of privilege. They need that euphoric feeling of lording control over someone else. So what do you do at this rehab center? Is it an actual center or is it like an online um, school? I've seen... Uh, there's someone else that I follow. Oh my gosh, I can't remember her name, but she has a program she launched. It's called the Unracist Accelerator or something wild. Unpack? Right? Unpack, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. 
yeah, I know her. I know her. Is it something similar like that? Like, what exactly are you doing? So I think hers is more of a cohort style, sort of like a, like an incubator, accelerator, or like a, a six-week program, I think. I don't know. Ours is different in the fact that we we have mimicked holistic healing practices that have been used for other contexts. And we're bringing them to this world. So basically, my my colleague, she does what's called No Invitation Required. Those are the weekly AA-style meetings or yoga class-like meetings where you pop in when you, when you have time or you can buy a three- or six-month subscription. And it's a safe space that white people can go or non-Black people can go and express themselves and ask stupid questions without fear of judgment. Then I do the 11-step program, which is mimicking a 30-day stint and rehab. So it's a huge psyche, mind-altering, just like experience in deciding who you are versus who you want to be when you're leaving this earth. Right. So you help people check their biases and become a little bit more aware of the privilege Mm -hmm. that they have and how they move around this country, especially around people of color and especially black people. Mm -hmm. Does that make any money? Is it free? It is not free. It is not free. In fact, we're starting actually a commitment, a challenge called the Diversify Challenge, where Mm -hmm. we're actually supporting black staff and faculties who are working at private companies or educational institutions like Yale, Columbia, Harvard, um, and so on and so forth. And we're helping the staff who are not being paid for doing the additional diversity work that they've had to take on, we're going to help them to be able to go back to their employer and say, here's how much work I'm doing, additional work on top of my job. And here's how much I would like to be compensated for that time. And if you can't compensate me, here's an external party that you can go pay your money to because I don't want to do this work. When they're making the Black employees hold space for traumatized black students and things of that nature, or if that black employee is the only black person in the office, but yet that black employee is having to turn around and teach the white people about the traumas and biases that they face, that employee becomes um, dangerously open to retaliation. Yeah, I think this is a common problem, especially in the corporate space. And there's an extra burden that you have to sort of wear around, especially if you're the only black person in the office and you get asked all sorts of weird things. I've definitely experienced something like that. So I get completely the burden that you're trying to uplift mm-hmm. and you're doing it in a very sincere way, which makes sense. Combine this with Florid. That's a lot. <laughs> okay. How are you managing your time and family life mm-hmm. and finances across the board? You know, how are you able to split up your time? What are some of the things that you do to make sure that you don't run yourself ragged? I've given my life over to Calendly. I had to let go and let God. So um, at least, you know, I don't I don't manage my own calendar anymore. I just tell people, hey, can do you mind if I send you my calendar link? And it's it's linked to all three of my personalities, the personal calendar, the bias calendar and then the Valoric calendar. Um, as far as, you know, family and stuff like that, I'll tell you honestly, I'm I'm not doing good. It's not balanced because I spend most of my time working. Would you like for it to be balanced? I would like it to be more balanced, yeah. In what way? I mean, I haven't done anything fun in a while. I would like to do some more fun stuff. Like what? <laughs> I mean, I guess COVID kind of killed it, but we used to at least go play spades with my friends. So you want to spend more time with friends and family. Yeah. And what's interesting here is that every founder has the power to just say, you know what, next Thursday, no meetings after 12. I'm not working. I'm going to go hang out. But we don't, right? Because in a way, we're kind of addicted to the work as well. We are addicted to the problem solving in a way. You're obsessed with it. And to be successful, you have to be somewhat obsessed with what you're doing. And some people will say, hey, but that's extreme. 
and I think it was Sam Altman, who was the uh, ex-president of Y Combinator, that said oh. extreme people get extreme results, right? Yeah. So if you're in this for extreme results, some part of you has to be extreme as well, yeah. in one way or the other. Yes. So we want to spend more time with family. How are we doing financially? How are you managing all that, right? Because you, you're not paying yourself. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure the money that you make, the months that you do pay yourself, you're putting it back into the company. I know that much, mm-hmm. right? How are you managing that? And what amount of stress does that add to your life? Oh, a lot of stress. I thank God for therapy. Um, my my therapist has helped me to understand the intricacies of spending, right? And how that mental allocation of money can physiologically stress you out. And so luckily she's been able to help me understand like how to proactively disconnect, you know, the two so that I'm not, you know, just constantly stressed out really. And as far as money, I, so I started the bias rehab center because I was sick and tired of chasing investors. And I said, you know, I'm an awesome person. I'm capable of awesome things. So what I'll do is in order to fund my first business, I'll start a second business Mm -hmm. and parlay that money. And so that's that's what I'm doing. So that's that's something that's not it's not uncommon. Yeah. Most people will have a side hustle to support the side hustle, which is nuts, (laughs) but it is a way to do it. And you know what? As a founder, you're going to have to do some shit, right? Yeah. You know, you're going to have to think outside of the box. It might seem that you're taking steps backward by not working on your business only. But you know what? It is what it is, right? The results tell. I mean, chasing an investor can set you back. That is true. Fundraising does take a lot of time. So you spoke about therapy, Mm -hmm. uh, which is something that I'm interested in. Yeah. As founders, you're dealing with a lot of stress, Yeah. right? You know, you've got people to pay, you've got a business to run, you've got family stuff, you've got society, mm. all these different things, right? Have you found therapy to be the most effective way to deal with all this? Or do you have other things that you do as well? And then do you fire up some sage late at night? Like, what else are you doing to, like, manage this stress? I'm not going to lie. Yeah, I'll, I'll burn some sage quick, fast, in a hurry. <laughs> uh, prayer meditation but yes therapy therapy yeah that's how you do it yeah honestly i've really through this process i had to deconstruct almost everything about myself be willing to throw everything about myself that didn't uh scale so to speak i had to let it go so uh you know therapy is helping me to re to structure myself according to the person that I want to be in the future, not according to who I was in the past. Who's that person? Kevin Hart Cool with Jeff Bezos Money. <laughs> <laughs> Billionaires. How do we get to that point? How do you get back to that point? What are the, some of the things that has to happen for you to become this person? Man, just get things, uh, you know, more in motion, continue to grow our products, our services, our expansion, our outreach rather. And so we're going to work our way all the way down to the bottom of South America. After that, we're going to jump over to South Africa and start working our way up. Good plan. As an entrepreneur, I have to ask, what's the first thing that you sold? Did you sell cookies? Just like in life in general? Just in life, when you realize that there's a power of having something that someone wants and they'll pay you something for it. Do you remember that? I do remember. I used to make those yarn bracelets things where you... You knit? Okay. I did knit, but not for money. Yeah. So I made the yarn bracelets. That was like my first thing as a as mm-hmm. like seven, eight, maybe nine years old. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. And at that point, you realized that hmm, there's this thing called entrepreneurship that I could potentially get into. So did you always have a plan to be an entrepreneur or were you like the rest of us? Were you just like, okay, corporate America sucks. I'm going to go do something else. Or were you always like, hey, you know what? From day one, I know I want to be an entrepreneur and I'm going to go get the skills in the corporate world and I'm going to leave and start my own thing. How did you get here? Well, I have to admit, entrepreneurialism does run in my family and my blood. So I always knew that being my own boss was an option. Uh, My great 
great grandfather uh, was like the first school principal, first black school principal in Mississippi. My current grandfather uh, had a shop, a candy shop in Chicago. Um, so I, I definitely had seen people in my family branch out. They they were hustlers, right? They they could always make something happen. Right. So when I started working, I, you know, I have always had the gypsy uh, spirit where I was working in theater and theater productions. They last so long. Right. And then you move on to another production. So it, I, I preferred that lifestyle of like freelance and uh, production and late at night versus up early in the morning. Mm-hmm. So yeah, once I tried the corporate lifestyle, I was like, oh, this is what everybody's been talking about. Oh, this does suck. Oh, I don't want to do this. <laughs> so tell me, every founder has something that comes very natural to them. I can sort of tell what yours is. Yeah. I'm going to let you into this one. What's your superpower? So what's the one thing that if all other things fail would always carry you through whatever you're doing? I guess my perspective, I see myself as a person who has lost. So in a way I'm a loser. And so I don't put any expectations on myself to be the Superman in the equation. I don't, I don't think I can save everybody, but I can help a lot of people. And that's always my thing is I just want to help people in a big way. So do you think that that carries over when you run your business? Do your customers feel that pull from you? Do they feel that attraction that you give off in terms of like wanting to just help them in their businesses? How are you able to translate that to something that people can feel and touch? I definitely do. Um, so we've made some incredible global relationships and, and within the community, in the global community, like not just black, not just people of color, but people in Antigua and, and Panama, Guatemala. We've been able to, through the ups and downs, maintain relationships with people that if it wasn't for my magnetic personality, I I wouldn't have been able to pull that off. I couldn't have seen somebody else maintain those relationships through the hurdles. Because I have to imagine, I mean, you're convincing a lot of people every day to join you. Mm-hmm. From different aspects. Right, right. Different aspects. There's language barriers in play. Um, there's all sorts of crap. I and mean, you just have to keep on. Well, I'm not going to say smiling because you don't have to smile all the time, right? You have, But you do have to tell a good story mm-hmm. and you also have to convince people and get them to sign on the dotted line, mm-hmm. right? If you go back, you know, six years ago, five years ago, six years ago, everything you know right now from Florid and all the other passion projects and things that you're doing, and you had to give advice to minus six years <laughs> Of, of <laughs> I mean, you're like, you know, your early 20s now. So let's say when you're a teen. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> what would you tell that person? Two things, just two. Just two things. Okay. Yeah. I would say don't look a gift horse in the mouth. There were some opportunities where, you know, I had buyers and for some reason I didn't think that they were serious because of like something they did. So I didn't pursue them. Well, it turned out that they were serious. And then reverse, it turned out that some people who I thought were serious because they were giving me all this attention and, you know, right. Uh, it turned out that they weren't serious. So I missed the sale. So one, don't look a gift horse in the mouth, take each opportunity, you know, for face value and flush them out. Just in business or everything in life? Everything in life, honestly. Okay. Turn through every window or door of opportunity. And the second one? For the second one, okay, well, this is one piece of advice that I just love. Don't take a no from somebody who doesn't have the authority to give you a yes. Mm. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Explain that. On your path... Not just an entrepreneurialism, not just in a, a just in a journey to be your own boss, but even in the corporate environment, you have people who will tell you no, that you can't do that, that we won't let you do that, but they don't have the authority to give you the yes. They're haters. That's a super powerful point. So I think for founders, that would be the junior associate at the VC firm telling you, oh, your time is too small, right? 
you know, you should probably get that from the senior associate or someone that can write the check. So that makes total sense. Or even I, I will tell you government resources. So like the small business development center, you know, there were people who were supposed to be my counselor, supposed to be there to help me build up my business. But instead they tore me down and told me, no, you're not going to succeed. You're not going to be able to do this. They didn't have the authority to tell me no. Do you have children yet? Not yet. Do you plan on? Yes. Wholeheartedly. Yeah? Yeah. I mean, after all of this, I definitely, if, if starting a side business to make the first business happen, I feel like after all of this, I I want to have kids. That'll be the, the last thing in life. And then I can be done. Interesting. So this is like uh, creating your legacy in a way. Very much so. So you've been in business for five, six years. In my books, most entrepreneurs have been in business their entire lives because you've been you've been trading things, not just services for money, but you've been trading things since you can actually comprehend that if I do something for someone, I can get something back, right? Yes. So the training starts very early. What are, and it doesn't have to be three, you know, you can just think of two or whatever, but I want three. What are three things that have worked? very well, broadly speaking. And what are three things that have not in terms of your approach, right? Like you run into a brick wall, you're going to hit your head and it's going to hurt. That's don't do that. Right. I'm talking about that level. Give me three on each side. That is a good question. Okay. So what has worked is putting myself out there, like just starting and doing it. That worked. Okay. Finding people to come along with me and motivating their dreams, you know, because really when you ask a supplier to join you and trust you, you're telling them I can make your dream come true. Okay. So that, that is work. And then a nonstop bitchy, like, I'm not going to let you tear me down attitude. Like, no, you're not going to run this black woman. That has kind of worked. Right. So standing for what you believe in. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. What what hasn't worked? What hasn't worked? Not having enough money. It didn't work. That that wasn't good. Bringing your friends, your personal friends. Right. <laughs> Unfortunately, you can't see my face, but I made a face. In support of that last statement. Okay, one more. I really found that approaching white men as investors didn't work. I can approach black people, black investors, and that will work. And I can approach some white women. I have to stand back and kind of watch them first. But yeah, the white men are instantly, they're either turned off by the view of me, right? Or they're turned on by the view of me in a totally wrong way. Oh, mm. that's, that is a discussion when we bring you back on the podcast sometime in the future. I want to know more about that. Okay. But you've got this huge business that you run in, potentially huge business, right? Kevin Hart with Bezos money. <laughs> you're doing a lot of diversity stuff in some parts because you're passionate about it, but also because you have to support the first business. You just got to do what you got to do. What is some advice that you have for young, black, potential entrepreneurs and founders out there? They're maybe in their early 20s. Mm -hmm. They're starting to think about it. They're starting to get that taste in their mouth. They've been scrolling IG and they're seeing all the entrepreneur this, entrepreneur that, and they want to get started, right? Mm -hmm. What are some of the steps that they have to take? even before they get to the business, right? Well, what can they start off with right now? Honestly, find an industry that you're, that you think you're interested in. And like, if you have that, like a, a sector that you believe in or um, a cause or a product, even if this is just your first step, spend that first year, just studying your ass off, learn about, everything about the way that that product is made. Learn everything about the way that product is shipped. 
learn about the materials that are involved in making your product, right? So like if it's a beverage, you've got raw materials that come from here. You've got aluminum cans that come from there. You've got your design. So you should do everything that you possibly can to learn about it from your perspective in your local area. Then go research how other people are doing it in other countries. Because even if your product is still staying domestically, you need to understand what the world is doing with that product. So you're saying taking the taking the learning approach, mm-hmm. right? If you, if you, even if you're not ready. And I, look, I agree with that. I think that you should be burying yourself in research. Mm-hmm. Um, whether you start off with Google or YouTube, it doesn't matter. Just learn. Know the most about, like, you know, investors would always say, if I know more about your industry than you, that's a problem. Right. Right. Like, you should know. Right. You, I shouldn't tell you anything that you don't know. You should be a high in me a lot. Right. So I think that you are right. Um, which brings me to probably the last question I want to talk ask you is finding time to continue to learn, right? And as entrepreneurs, you always have to be reading something. I guess uh, two questions actually. Sorry, they're loaded. It's okay. But what are you reading right now? What is and that face that you made tells me something. <laughs> I know. <laughs> and how do you make time to actually step outside of the hustle? to re-educate yourself on some of the skills. Cause look, you know, I, one thing about my founder's journey is I reached my, a cliff, mm. right? I call it a knowledge cliff where you realize that the only thing stopping you from going further up, right. Or taking off was the fact that you were lacking information mm. and there's no, there's no way there's no better way in this world to get to that knowledge cliff than to start a company. Cause you would literally be looking at yourself in the mirror saying, I don't know what to do next. Yeah. Right. And you have to have these pathways built into what you're doing in your life where you go get that information. Like for me, I'll tell you right now, what I do is I look around me and I say, who do I know that is great with this thing that I'm struggling with? And I go mm-hmm. find them and I DM them and I say, Hey, can I buy you coffee? Can we sit down? Right. And I try and get a lot of information that I need from them, or at least in part, a pathway to go acquire information that would work for me very quickly. Obviously, you have to be quick, mm-hmm. right? So in, 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 in your case, what are some of those pathways that you take advantage of in terms of keeping up your education and your knowledge? I view knowledge as though there are things that I know and then things that I don't know that I don't know. So what I do is I try to remove myself. So right now I'm kind of skimming through the five love languages. I got to get that one. I mean, it's not business related per se, but if you think about it, it, the interpersonal relationships that you build through professional, you know, contacts, that love language in a way still applies to your, to your business setting. Just to jump in here, I'm going to let you go on. Um, for people who are tuned in that have made this far into the podcast, first of all, thank you. Yeah. Right? But but secondly, business is a construct, right? Mm-hmm. It's a construct. It's a contract between people, right? So what you're saying is that, you know, the five love languages, you know, it's not businessy. It is everything to do with business. It, is, right? it does. It is the underpinning of successful companies yeah, and it's the underpinning of successful business partners and relationships. So I'm just going to throw that in there and say, it is everything about running a business. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Cause I know when I first said it, it doesn't sound businessy, but really though, those people, when you have somebody who, who prefers the statements of affirmation, so they prefer that in their business life as well. Obviously, physical touch is not an option right now, but, uh, you know, the time spent, I personally, I'm a big person about my time when it comes to meetings. I even that now I was here in the podcast thing before before you got here because I didn't want to be late. And that's how I view my time. And so that's my love language. Just call me out there. No, I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> Just call me out there. It's cool. It's cool. Just a little back no, end there. I'm no, just a little you, OCD about like. But you are right. Um, 
A series of relationships. Okay, so five love languages. You should probably go check it out. This is not a promo. Uh, I'm just saying that because clearly it's useful. So I would love to continue the conversation, but we have touched on our limit. I have so many more questions to ask. But Brooke, it's been fantastic talking to you. Thank you. If someone wants to reach out to you, where do you hang out around the web? Can they email you? What are some of the deets and stuff like that? So, you know, maybe there's someone out there that wants to be a seller on the platform. Yeah. Where can people find you? You can find more information about Valorate. We're on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. Uh, you feel free to email me directly at bsinclair at Valorate, V-E-L-O-U-R-I-T dot com. And I will get back to you as soon as possible. And the website for your company? Oh, www.valorit.com. Valorit.com, people. Blockchain, technology, logistics, shipping. If you have something that you're selling and you think you want to get it across the border, check it out. And if you made it this far, like and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. Leave us a review. I read all of them. Till next week. Bye. Bye.